Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts. I am Dave Fletcher. In the studio with me is Jeremy Bean. Thank you, hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Howdy. Coming up later in the show, we have an interview with Ron Lindsay about bioethics. But first, this is the first episode of Reasonable Doubts in what I like to think of as our Obamination. The election is over. Obamination? Like abomination? Well... Uh, that's what they were saying about him. Yeah, well, still, here in Michigan, it was a, a big victory for the liberals. Not only did Obama take the state, but we also here in Michigan passed a law to allow medical marijuana, which is uh, very exciting. And there was a proposal. What, what was Proposal 2 doing exactly? Proposal 2 was supporting embryonic stem cell research mm-hmm. in the most conservative way possible simply by saving fertilized embryos um, that were destined for the trash right. from fertility clinics and these other things and allowing them to be used as research. But uh, both of them passed, so I'm anticipating a lot of happy researchers and a epidemic of glaucoma. Hitting our area. Absolutely. I myself was kind of stumbling into the studio today, bumping into things. I, I don't know. I think I need to see a doctor. Yeah, yeah. I, I say go in and yeah, that's 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 good. You wanna nip that in the bud. So well, we uh are in high spirits and had a really happy Tuesday night. Doctor James Dobson, uh I know one of Luke's personal heroes, is not quite so happy these days. Uh, Dr. Dobson has admitted to being, quote, in a grieving process over the presidential election result, which he says is a huge setback for the pro-life movement. Dobson says, I'm not grieving over Barack Obama's victory, but over the loss of things I fought for for 35 years, to which I would say, ha ha. The article goes on to say, He pointed to Obama's commitment to abortion rights and the advancement of the homosexual agenda. Which is actually one area where I'm I'm not impressed with Obama. He I don't think he's doing nearly enough for the homosexual agenda. But uh, Dobson also says that he's going to appoint the most liberal justices to the Supreme Court, perhaps that we've ever had. Well, I don't know where he gets off saying that is it no, I mean you could you uh, could argue that the Warren court was did a lot more in terms of progressive things than than some of the more than the justices on the court now like G- well, Ginsburg Bader Ginsburg or yeah. Stevens that that these were not you know these were actually be considered mainstream judges by maybe the standards of the 1960s you know mm-hmm. and the other fact is that Obama can't change the composition of the court that much because he can only re- the ones that are likely to retire will be the more liberal the justices, liberal ones Stevens already and right. Ginsburg yep. and so all he can do is maintain the balance probably with two or three appointments. So really, we're locked into the to the Bush court for for a while, for a long time. So Dobson is, of course, horrified at the the prospect that we may keep a balance on the Supreme Court. I, I think a lot of evangelicals were hoping that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm not sure. They, they that are with was, every election. I'm not sure that was ever realistically going to happen. I don't know what the Republican Party would do without that yeah. pro-life you could argue issue. That they want, they want that issue as a bludgeon to be trundled right. out every few elections to mobilize socially conservative people who don't benefit from Republican fiscal policies to get out the vote and right. vote against all the gays and the abortionists, but then they never really do anything about it. They don't want to do anything about it in many cases. And frankly, this is the best thing that's ever happened to Dobson because now he can spend the next eight years decrying the Obama administration and it keeps him working. As we've said before in the show, if the if the evangelicals are serious about reducing abortions, they should put their money into better sex education. Right. And, you know, that might explain why maybe we have orders of magnitude more abortions than, say, you know, countries in Europe like Netherlands and right, Sweden right. and Germany because they, they're not, they don't have dumbass sexual education policies like mm-hmm. we do. So. Mm-hmm. Planned Parenthood has probably done more to bring down the level of abortions, I think, than any of these pro-life Absolutely. groups by just distributing um, 
birth control measures and trying to teach people about them. Well, I don't think we can expect, however, evangelicals to take that strategy. More likely, we're going to see more of what we saw in Colorado Mm -hmm. over this last election season. That is the Colorado Personhood Amendment. Gotta love that. Yeah, ethicists debate back and forth about when should personhood be attributed to, well, not just a human being, but to any sentient creature. Mm -hmm. But it's great that while these debates in academia go on and people have to be very thoughtful about their views and the implications of them, Joe Blow can walk into a voter's booth Mm -hmm. uh, in Colorado and just decree by punching the right hole, you know, some matter of great moral consequence. Right. Without any knowledge of basic science or what the what the ratio of spontaneous abortions and things like that really are, you know. Right. I think Ron Lindsay brought that up. If 80 percent of embryos of fertilized eggs are aborted anyway, what evidence is there that the supreme being of the universe is yeah. interested in conserving life. Like, I, right. think, I think the phrase that Ron Lindsay used was, it's a game changer. If that's really true, that every time mm-hmm. a sperm meets egg, that's a real equivalent to an adult human being. Forget cancer research. Forget mm-hmm. heart disease. Right. If you really believe that that's a person, you should invest all your money into figuring out why they're spontaneously aborted or fail to implant. That's or right. Anything. And, yeah. and, if, and <clears throat> taking that even further, if you deny life-saving medical treatment to a child— for example, mm-hmm. wouldn't that be wouldn't that be negligent manslaughter? Yes. I mean, so shouldn't every woman that is of um, that has a potential to get pregnant, mm-hmm. shouldn't they be in round the clock prenatal care? Right. And if they aren't, and one of these spontaneous abortions has determined to have happened, shouldn't they be liable for negligent homicide? Well, yeah, and then I think Singer's other argument that seems that's rather obvious is that if 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 your criteria is potential for life, why stop at conception? I mean, is, right. is every sperm and every egg aren't those potential every sperm lives? is sacred? Why is it fertilization? There's really no reason to stop that right at that moment. Yeah. Uh, every time you have a wet dream, it's mass murder. You know, every time <laughs> right. that a woman does not get pregnant with her monthly uh, ovulation, it's she's depriving a potential life. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're talking, of course, about uh, Peter Singer. If you're not familiar with him, P- Peter Singer is a famous ethicist. His work is mostly in the area of utilitarian ethics, mm-hmm. and his conclusions are very controversial. But he's very popular because he writes in such a clear way. And um, really a nice guy too. I got to meet him out in New oh. York uh, a year or so ago. He even if you don't agree with his conclusions, he's very convincing in the way he argues for them. So I I wanted to read a a quick passage from his book, Practical Ethics, written in 1979 and still addresses most of the the things that we're talking about today. This is him talking about the difficulty of trying to attribute personhood to an embryo. Hmm. Human beings are individuals, and early embryos are not even an individual. At any time up to about 14 days after fertilization— The embryo can split into two or more genetically identical embryos. Mm -hmm. This happens naturally and leads to the formation of identical twins. When we have an embryo prior to this point, we cannot be sure if what we are looking at is the precursor of one or two individuals. And, of course, you can see where that's going because this leads to a problem. He says, those who stress the continuity of our existence from conception to adulthood are faced with a problem. Suppose we have an embryo in a dish or on a laboratory bench. If we think of this embryo as at the first stage of an individual human being, we might call it Mary. But now suppose the embryo divides into two identical embryos. Is one of them still Mary and the other Jane? If so, which one is Mary? There's nothing to distinguish mm-hmm. the two. No way of saying that the one we call Jane split off from the one we call Mary, or rather vice versa. So should we say that Mary is no longer with us and instead we have Jane and Helen? But what happened to Mary? Did she die? Should we grieve for her? There's something absurd about these speculations, and the absurdity stems from thinking of the embryo as an individual at the time at which it is only a cluster of cells. There's a a really simple solution to this, though, and the answer is that identical twins share a soul. They share a soul. They each get half a soul. That's it. It's Mary 1 and Mary 2. 
Uh, people accuse Singer of using extreme. Well, they can actually fuse back together. So yeah, see, maybe that is the right theory. Uh, it is. Uh, the, now I see. You can always say that he uses extreme cases, and he's caught a lot of flack for his view for his arguments on like mental retardation and yeah. like you know with animals being smarter than some mentally retarded and kids. bestiality. Yeah. So, but. Here's the thing that, that, like you mentioned before, there's voters that go in there and push a button. They have no knowledge of even basic biology, and they right. just have strong views on, you know, uh, it's a baby, you're a baby killer, and that's it. And so, if this would have passed, I was just waiting for people in Colorado to start making amendments like the absurd things we talked about, like, okay, now an embryo is a person. Okay, so now we're going to have the embryo death medical research foundation where we're going to you know, research why these embryos right. fail to implant and then f- fund all our, you know, sure. let's, let's, or you ask, um, there's also a funny thing on YouTube, or it's not funny, but they, they it's uh, anti-abortion protesters in Libertyville, I think it's Ohio, and the guy just simply asked them, do you believe that abortion should be illegal? And they say yes, because an embryo is a person, you know, well, what should the crime be? Or the punishment be for the crime? Mm-hmm. Oh, um, <clears throat> well, they should just, uh, you know, the women should be talked to by, you know, he's like, well, you just said it was murder. <laughs> so, right. you know, right. uh, do murders, <laughs> isn't there usually a penalty for that? Well, uh, it's just between them and their God. No, you, you said it was Whoa, murder. You no, know? no, no, no. And no. many of these people have no idea that, that, that the implications of their views, that if that's, you know, an, an adult human being that you're murdering, and they have, they realize that if you say, oh, they should get first degree murder. Right. Just like if you kill anybody else, that that would never but I, I, I don't want to go too elitist here because you're saying, well, you know, uninformed voters are going in to, to vote on these these heady scientific issues. And, yes, that's true. Uninformed voters are also going in to vote on the presidency and, and all of that. Where do we draw the line? Do we say that these, these science issues should be – these decisions should be made by – Congress or by the president. We have a poll or, test now. Well, we I, have I, to pass a, a quiz to get into the poll. I, I don't know about the all the legal implications. I, I haven't thought it out, but it is kind of strange that we that we would allow huge ethical issues to be resolved in this way and scientific I, it, issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Example, yeah, yeah. exactly. So look at the Kansas school board um, defining science as something that that. It essentially is not, which is right. including it, supernatural. It, it covers supernatural as well as naturalistic yes. explanations. Mm-hmm. You know, these are questions of fact in some cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and right. fact is not decided by popular vote. Yeah, you have your right to your opinions, but you don't have your a right to your own facts. Some things are true or not, and th- that's going to be sounded as elitist, like Dave said. But you know, you can't like we were cracking on Dobson before, and he's saying out there saying you should vote for these things like in California against gay right. uh, f- marriages and families because it's damaging to children. Well, in the scientific debate, it's why doesn't, you know, not. that's not and, correct. Right, right. And so anybody can trundle that out and say the reason I'm voting for this is because it, it's damaging to families, to kids to be raised with gay parents. Well, that's factually not true. Right. It's so easy to say science shows that this is damaging to parents and it's much harder to say, no, no, this is what science actually shows. And that's that's a harder message to get across, especially when you're not a James Dobson and who's already got. You point that ear. out to these people, and then they retreat back to, "Well, I just don't like it morally. It's against the right. tradition thing." Okay, if that's really your so, basis for that, yeah. then state that. But don't state that. Don't state something that's not factually true. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, fortunately for us, and especially for Colorado residents, the amendment did lose. It lost Soundly. overwhelmingly. Seventy-three yes. percent voted against, with twenty. Uh, with only 27 percent voting for. And in fact, um, even some uh, evangelicals came out strongly against it, recognizing the, the implications, yeah, recognizing how wide ranging the implications would be. You have people like Julie Brown, the president of the American Life League, who sees this whole thing as very encouraging. This is a pro-life group. And the fact that in Colorado, the most liberal of all Liberal states, according she to tries Julie to make Brown, it out to be, which she I don't know spins where she gets this to be. Um, yeah, she says that um, Amendment Forty Eight, that's the uh, um, Personhood Amendment, gained twenty-seven percent of the vote in one of the most pro-abortion states in the union. Amendment Twenty-Eight introduced the ideas of personhood for the pre-born. To the nation, preborn. Yeah, she frames it as one of the last struggles of the civil rights movement. Yeah, absolutely. And and she says that what was it? F- 
five million or, or whatever number of people who came out and voted yes for it. That this is such a this is such a reaffirming number. And I'm thinking, yeah, three times as many people voted against it. And well, she's trying to put a positive spin on what was a major crap loss sandwich for, for them. them. But at the same time, she has a little bit of a point in the press release from the American Life League. Uh, she writes. The personhood fire began in Colorado and has now ignited personhood campaigns in 16 other states. So in other words, this is something that people didn't even know before was a possible strategy, and now it's going to be pursued. And we can expect to see a lot more of these bioethical issues being decided at the level of popular ignorance. Okay, so then we should have uh, bills to prevent fertility procedures that create embryos because that's just creating extra persons that are never going to be used. So let's see those groups go up against couples who uh, have to go through, who can't conceive and need fertility procedures that are that are producing all these embryos that will never be used. They're just sitting there on ice. They're going right, to be discarded. Right. I think, that we, again, we should have, if these uh, states where they pass these crazy measures, there should be people who, who are ready there with bills to follow through the implications of that. You know, no more yeah. fertility procedures, no more birth control, no more anything. Well, the just the sad fact of the matter is as our technology increases, as our ability to do things with biology, knowing the human genome and everything else, as that continues, we are going to face some of the most genuinely difficult ethical decisions that our species has ever faced. Things that before were only conceivable in science fiction, those abilities are going to be in our hands. And we're going to have to have a very careful, very thoughtful, and very humble dialogue about what direction we want to see the human species take with this new technology. And unfortunately, this this is one of those where it really comes down to when we're making decisions not based on reason, not based on information, but based on some sort of creed or dogma because we have faith in it, we're inadequately prepared to deal with some of these really difficult mm-hmm. and challenging issues. And on that topic, we have an interview with Ron Lindsay. Ron Lindsay holds a doctorate in bioethics and is the author of the new book, Future Bioethics, Overcoming Taboos, Myths, and Dogmas. And he's going to tell us more about some of these challenges in bioethics that we will see in upcoming years. Ronald Lindsay, thank you for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. For people who may not be familiar with the field of bioethics, what are some of the issues that we would be talking about? Uh, What is a bioethicist's job? The field of bioethics focuses on the ethical and legal implications arising out of the practice of medicine, biomedical research, the use of biomedical technologies. And because of the developments in in recent decades uh, in those areas, especially in the area of research and technologies, uh, it's generated a lot of uh, controversies and public policy questions that uh, affect many of us. And that's what interested me and has interested a number of philosophers to get into the field of bioethics. Some of the issues, for example, and, and many of these issues are addressed in my book, are the question of assistance in dying, sometimes called assisted suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, stem cell research, uh, human enhancement, uh, that is the use of either drugs or genetics to improve our capabilities in, in certain areas, healthcare uh, refusal, sometimes called conscientious objection or provider refusal. In other words, we have a situation where, let's say, a pharmacist refuses to dispense uh, contraception because the pharmacist thinks that's immoral. Genetically engineered uh, plants and produce, how they should be regulated, whether they should be allowed at all. Uh, those are some of the uh, major areas that uh, have generated controversy uh, recently and continue to generate controversy. A lot of that controversy is presumably generated by the fact that traditional religious views will come to bear on these issues. Can you give me some examples of how ideology or religious dogma can interfere or influence these debates? Uh, There are several areas, and I think they influence the debates for the worse, because essentially when people invoke dogma, they shut off discussion. They apply what they think is some sort of rigid rule that's dictated uh, by God, or what they believe is God. Of course, it's God's views as interpreted by their priest, minister, rabbi, what have you. 
uh, and they simply apply those rules rigidly without really thinking about the if issue rationally. Uh, one example, for example, is the debate over assisted dying. You often hear sanctity of life invoked as a reason why we can't permit uh, mm-hmm. assisted dying. Well, what does that mean? What does sanctity of life mean? To me, it means, if anything, uh, if it has any content at all, if it's not just a slogan, it means respect for life. Well, why do we respect life? And that's part of the problem. You know, when you you start invoking these dogmas and you shut off discussion, you don't think of the underlying rationale why we have moral norms. Mm -hmm. I, I think morality has to be looked at from a practical perspective. We have to ask ourselves, why do we have these moral norms? Why do we expect certain behavior from others? Yes, people say you can't kill. Well, why is that? Again, ultimately, I think it's because we have to live together. We have to respect others' wishes. Uh, it's certainly true that in most circumstances, people don't want to die. People want to continue living. So over time, human societies have evolved moral norms that indicate uh, we should respect life. But in certain situations, there could be circumstances where someone doesn't want to live. And moreover, that desire to uh, hasten his or her death may be based not on some emotional or mental disturbance, but on objective facts. For example, a, a patient who's dying of cancer as it, and has uncontrollable pain. In that circumstance, to say, oh, sanctity of life means, well, we, we can't do anything to help this person to die. Well, why? What, what, you know, how are you respecting life by taking away this person's decision when the person mm-hmm. has decided they're near their end of the days anyway, and the only question is whether the person can die peacefully now or suffer for another three or four weeks, and the person has the competence and has considered it and has made the decision to hasten his or her death, why does this slogan, Sanctity of Life, somehow say, oh, we can't assist this person? It obviously, it, it, you know, if you think of it rationally, it shouldn't. And that's the, you know, example of a dogma, you know, the dogma about sanctity of life that prevents us from reasoning about these issues and coming to a conclusion that actually respects persons as individuals. Now, if some are trying to base their opinions on pure dogma, um, how is it that you go about making your moral judgments? Uh, I guess I'm asking a question of, of moral epistemology. It's easy when we're dealing with science because these are matters of fact. When we move to questions of value, um, what do you use as your basis to judge not how the situation is but how we ought to behave? Very good question. And uh, chapter two is probably the most important chapter in my book. And anyone who has an opportunity to read my book, I definitely encourage them to look at that. Yes. I know there's there's often a temptation when you see a chapter devoted to methodology to kind of skip over it and get to like these substantive issues. I mean, I know I do that all the time, but I, I recommend readers not do that because there I outline the approach I take. I guess let me make a, a few points right away. First of all, it's clear the way we can't go is simply to rely on dogma, again, whether it's religious or an ideological dogma, because that just shuts off discussion. We need to start with reasons and facts that are accessible to everyone, that everyone can consider whatever their religious viewpoint. I happen to believe that the starting point, because uh, you have to start somewhere, mm-hmm. and you know, you'll have some philosophers who say, well, gee, you, you you have to go with utilitarianism or deontology. You know, a lot of philosophers have different sort of ethical theories. In fact, there are probably as many different ethical theories as there are philosophers. Uh, and I think for that reason alone, that's kind of a, a you know a dead end. That's not how we should approach things. Uh, among other things, there are most people who reason about these issues and who, who we want to have reason about these issues are not philosophers. So if you're starting out with some abstruse theory, I don't think that's really going to work. Start off with what I call in the book common morality, that is the norms that virtually everyone accepts. And if you look at human history, mm-hmm. there hasn't been any human society that hasn't shared certain core norms, as I call them. You know, no morally serious person thinks it's okay to steal, uh, to lie, to kill, to injure others. Uh, I mean, as prima facie, what I call prima facie rules, meaning that uh, it imposes an obligation, all things considered. Now, sometimes you're in a situation where your norms may conflict and you have to balance them and evaluate them. You know, simple example, obviously, sometimes we think it's okay to break a commitment if there's some overriding obligation. If I said I was going to be here for the interview, 
but then I'm driving along and I see there's someone who's had an accident and I stop to help that person, that's an overriding obligation. So yeah, our, our norms can conflict, but most of the time we're in agreement about what takes priority. So if you look at things, you know, people often say ethics is subjective. Uh, and you know, depending on what they mean by that, I could either say yes or no. But if what they mean by that, that there's always disagreement about moral issues, that's simply wrong. Actually, there's widespread consensus about most moral issues. We tend to overlook that because we look at the exceptions, the areas where there are disagreements. But if you start with the norms of common morality, I think that gives you the foundation. The next step is when you're looking at bioethics policies, and obviously they're usually policies for a specific nation, maybe a group of nations, but usually nations that have you know, kind of similar cultures. Start off with norms that are commonly and wide, you know, have widespread acceptance in those cultures. Now, you may say that means I'm endorsing moral relativism. Not necessarily. I'm just saying that if you're looking at policies, why not look at the norms that are commonly accepted nowadays as opposed to, say, the norms that might be accepted in medieval France? Uh, one norm wide that has widespread acceptance in American culture and I think in European culture is respect for autonomy. Mm. That wasn't a norm that was accepted throughout human history. I mean, if you look at ancient times and medieval times, in fact, until recently, there wasn't that much respect for a person's autonomy. You know, the state thought they had a right to control the destiny of a person. But nowadays we accept that. So begin with the common morality, expand that to include uh, norms that are commonly accepted within one's current culture, and there you go to look at the consequences of a norm. Uh, let's say, for example, again, let, averting to the situation about ass, uh, assisted dying. Uh, if, in fact, you say that we should legalize assisted dying, one thing you need to look at is, well, what would the consequences be if we legalized it? Would there be any harm to people? And some people have said, well, yeah, we would have, for example, maybe a decrease in uh, palliative care, that is the care that's given to people at the end of their life, because the uh, attitude of physicians would be, well, the person's going to be dying anyway, and you know they can take a pill to end their life if they want. Why should we, should we spend time on hospice and other things? Uh, also, there was a concern that there was a legalization that uh, some states would become suicide mills. You have you know tens of thousands of people lining up to die. Hmm. Uh, people would uh, get the medication to end their lives, even if they were emotionally unstable. Uh, there wouldn't be, in other words, proper consideration of their circumstances. Uh, there'd be a lot of situations where there were mistakes made in diagnosis. All those actually are legitimate things to be concerned about. So yeah, yeah when you're thinking about a proposed policy, you need to think about the consequences. Fortunately, in the we have an example in the United States. We have the situation in Oregon where they've had assisted uh, dying for 10 years, and none of those predicted parade of horribles has come to pass. Uh, palliative care actually is better in Oregon than it is in most states. Hmm. Uh, it's not a suicide mill. Uh, roughly five or 600 people have used the law in, in 10 years' time to end their lives. Uh, no evidence whatsoever that anyone's been coerced, no evidence that there's been a mistaken diagnosis. In other words, someone was giving the medication even though they weren't terminally ill. Uh, and the most striking thing, and I think this is very important to bear in mind, uh, especially people who say, well, gee, we're going to be pressuring people to die and it's not good. Roughly 35% of the people uh, who request uh, a medication, and, what, and the way that works in Oregon is you're terminally ill, uh, you have to state uh, several times that you want assistance, you're examined not only by your regular physician, but by a consulting physician. You have to prove that you're competent, that you don't have a psychological uh, impairment. And there's actually a whole host of hurdles you have to go mm -hmm. through. And then the decision whether to use the medication, usually it's a barbiturate, remains with the patient. As I said, roughly 35% of the patients who get the medication never use it. Hmm. What does that indicate? It means they control the circumstances of, of their death. And what they want is, again, it's not that we're enabling people who have some kind of emotional disturbance and you know just want to end their lives. These are people who are concerned about suffering, right. who are suffering, and just want to have the knowledge that if it becomes unbearable, they can end it. Uh, obviously, if, if they can sustain, uh, can put up with the pain, usually they'll do it. As I said, a lot of the patients who get the medication decide to continue living, but they have that assurance that if it becomes too bad, they can end it. So it's really a way to respect the 
the patient's decision. That's another, you know, argument against those who say, well, gee, we're not respecting sanctity of life because, you know, what the physicians in Oregon are doing are killing patients. No, not at all. I mean, how can you say the physician is killing the patient when all the physician does is give the prescription and then the patient decides whether to use it? As I said, a substantial percentage of the patients never actually use the medication. So, as I said, I'm yeah. getting into some detail, but that's the, the third step, if you will. Look at the consequences of your proposed rule. Then see if your proposed rule is consistent with other norms. Um, and again, just because we're on the topic, let's look at assisted dying again. As you probably know, uh, patients in this country have essentially an absolute right, right to end uh, treatment if they want, life-preserving mm-hmm. treatment. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you're on a respirator or something else and you decide, hey, you don't want it anymore, uh, it's just too intrusive and you, there's no point in going on, you have an absolute right to refuse that treatment, even though you and your phys- physician know that when they take the respirator away, you're going to die. So, so we but, already grant basically the same. Exactly. We grant to many patients the right to end their lives with the physician's assistance in the circumstance where they're being preserved by some sort of machinery. So if we're being consistent, we should allow the patients who need the barbiturate to hasten their death the same right as we allow patients to hasten their death who do it by just disconnecting the, the tubes. Right. Uh, so again, look to see if your policies are consistent. So if if you apply all these steps, I think I'm not saying this will give you like the one right answer because I think that is a mistake some people make when they look to uh, philosophy and say, "Oh, look, we'll have to look at philosophy and it'll give us some kind of guidance and we'll we'll apply this decision procedure and this will be the one right answer for everyone." I think that you're not going to get that. Uh, but what you can do is, if, if you apply this methodology, is limit the range of acceptable answers. Mm-hmm. So then we can, you know, debate things, have a reasonable discussion. I think that's really all you can hope for, for mm-hmm. any type of uh, uh, method and ethics. But actually, that would vastly improve the situation we have now, where essentially, for most of these uh, debates, especially in bioethics, we don't have anything like that among the general population, and more importantly, among the decision makers. You don't get legislators dealing with these things on a rational basis. Again, they just trade slogans back and forth. You talked earlier about, um, you kept on saying, um, look for a consistent position, and that, as a philosopher, is what you need to do. However, you know, on the the average population, it's very hard for us to always see what is logically consistent, especially if you take Mark Hauser and some of the information that we're getting from evolutionary psychology about how our moral reasoning developed. There seems to be just instinctually certain things that we don't like doing. How do we deal with these very emotionally charged issues and get people to think deeper than just their emotional gut reaction? Well, I mean, to some extent, you're always going to have the emotion involved, and it's not necessarily bad because you do want to have people emotionally invested in an issue to spend time Mm -hmm. thinking about these things. But you're right. Sometimes emotion can block reasoning. I think the most important step, first of all, is to kind of break the stranglehold that religion or, in some cases, ideology has on people because what that does essentially is to reinforce uh, the emotional thought, the kind of intuitive reaction that people have, intuitive, in, mm. you know, adverse reaction oftentimes. That seems like a pretty heavy task. It is a heavy task. It is. I mean, it's not something that's going to be uh, – we're going to be able to do overnight or over a decade or, or what have you. I am – And in the meantime, some of these technologies and other things, you know, these are right here, right now. And They're right here. And, and done about it. it. Exactly. And our progress is being impeded uh, by the uh, people who rely on dogma. Uh, Stem cell research is a perfect example. We could be a lot further along in developing therapies had we not been held back by a lack of appropriate funding for stem cell research. Uh, It's been almost a decade now uh, that we've had the possibility of creating stem cell lines uh, from embryos. Uh, and yes, you can do it. I mean, there's no law that prohibits you from doing it, but obviously we're not advancing mm-hmm. as f- fast as we could if the federal government were funding it. As you know, the federal government funds most uh, health research in this country. NIH has a huge budget, but as you know, they don't fund uh, embryonic stem cell research essentially for religious reasons. I mean, you'll get 
uh, secular arguments or arguments that have secular camouflage, but at the end of the day, they, they amount to religious dogma. I mean, the, you know, the, the argument, for example, that we can't do embryonic stem cell research because the embryo is equivalent of an adult human being. There's no reason whatsoever uh, scientifically to reach that conclusion. It's a reflection of religious dogma. Uh, there are religious spokespeople who choose a position that is for stem cell research or for assisted dying and have religious rationales to back them up. Do you think to help uh, sort of reach across the aisle and and help them to advance their arguments, is that, a, is that just a quick fix, uh, not addressing the real problem, or is that the type of thing we need to advance better bioethics policies? It's a quick fix. In the, in the long run, it's not going to help us because I think it's the improper approach to ethics because for anyone who doesn't share your religion, the reasons you're offering, if you want to call them reasons, aren't going to be persuasive at all. I mean, so religion, many people refer to religion as a conversation stopper, and it is. In the area of public policy, whatever attack you're taking, uh, whether it's pro-stem cell or against stem cell research, uh, if you're relying on religious dogma, you're shutting off public debate on the issue. So I understand the temptation to say, okay, well, yeah, most of the people who rely on religion, they're uh, against the positions that most humanists favor. You know, they're against stem cell research, et cetera. But there are some religious uh, leaders who are in favor of it. We should form alliances with them. Well, depending on what that alliance entails, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that's a bad idea. But if we're saying we're going to adopt their rhetoric uh, mm -hmm. and just join with them because they happen to have more numbers than we do, I think that's a mistake. It ultimately is not going to advance uh, public policy debate. Do you think it's possible then to have a consistent discussion that policy could follow from um, and craft policy that doesn't take any sort of – that doesn't presuppose any sort of metaphysical worldview, whether it be a religious or a naturalistic one? Right. I think, I think so. I mean – uh, when you say it doesn't presuppose a naturalistic worldview, I mean, certainly whatever ethics we have ha has to reflect the facts. Well, I, I mean in the uh, sense yeah. that, that going the extra mile and uh, saying there are no supernatural entities at all. Right. You don't have to – you can just bracket the whole issue of whether there's a god or a set of gods or whatever. It shouldn't take any role in the public policy discussion. And as I point in my book, my book it shouldn't be interpreted as, as an anti-religious book. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I indicate, in fact, maybe it should have been steered that way because given the success of people like Hitchens <laughs> and, and Dawkins and whatever, maybe I would have sold more books. But uh, there, there have been a number of uh, bioethicists who actually are religious and have contributed to the public policy debate, but they do that because they don't invoke religion and they offer arguments that are accessible mm -hmm. to everyone. So, yes, I think it's certainly possible to have a public policy debate that doesn't presuppose any metaphysical view about whether there's a god or not a god, and that's really how we should proceed in public policy debate. We bracket this whole question of what your metaphysics are because the metaphysics doesn't really relate to the ethics. Many of us are hoping that we're about to see major shifts in politics here in America over the next at least four years, hopefully longer. Perhaps some of these issues now that have, that have been off the table, there may be the political power necessary to push through reforms in these areas with stem cells and, and other issues. My question for you is, in this very important time in the next up and coming years, what should be our highest priority? Activists who want to get involved and, and want to make a difference, what are the types of issues that demand our most urgent attention? Well, the stem cell research issue is very important. It continues to be important. Uh, it's really highly regrettable that research in this area has been blocked. And, you know, some, some people who are imposed to embryonic stem cell research have brought up the issue of some recent developments uh, where you're able to create stem cells without using an embryo. Uh, first of all, there's still some kinks to work out in those various techniques. So it's not clear whether they'll really work. But in any event, all the scientists who are working in that field agree that, well, gee, simply because we have this other technique doesn't mean we want to abandon use of you know, embryos and have embryonic stem cell research because it, whatever your field of research, you don't give up some promising method simply because you have another method that also may yield results. So everyone agrees, all the scientists agree, we should pursue embryonic stem cell research. And I think it is important for people who are interested in this, and I hope it's the majority of people, anyone who has an interest in, in getting therapies, 
that might radically uh, improve their health or the health of their loved ones should be involved in this, should work to bring about legislation that would allow funding, proper funding of embryonic stem cell research. Now, what that means, among other things, is you have to look at the candidate's positions on the issues and make decisions accordingly or become politically active. A number of states actually have proposals uh, on their own to fund stem cell research. But in any event, as I say, those who are interested in it and have the time to devote to it should get involved in these types of issues. Uh, another issue that has become fairly important recently is the idea of provider refusal, a conscientious mm-hmm. objection by healthcare professionals. Uh, the Bush administration, unfortunately, has taken a very broad view of the right of healthcare professionals generally to refuse or to assist in any type of treatment to which they object. Uh, just literally about a month ago, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services proposed a regulation that would give very expansive rights to healthcare professionals to uh, refuse to assist in, in virtually any type of procedure mm. to which they have any type of objection. Uh, and this extends not just to doctors and nurses, but to healthcare aides, for example. I mean, one example cited around the regulation is someone who cleans surgical instruments. And if they have an objection to the procedure in which the instrument's going to be used, they can decline to clean the instruments. Uh, and th- th- some people say, well, gee, this is, why shouldn't they have this right to, to refuse to do something? Don't we respect, you know, someone's conscience? Uh, actually, that's that's not the case. I mean, uh, conscience ob- objection came about uh, first in the military context. You know, we had a draft for, for many years or decades. So I started in the Civil War and continued up through the Vietnam War. And we wrote into the legislation that people who have a conscientious objection to serving in the military can opt out. Well, a few things. First of all, that's a situation where the government is telling you exactly. you have to join the military. Government doesn't tell anyone to become a physician, mm-hmm. a nurse, or a pharmacist. That's the choice of the person. And when you enter into a profession where your focus is to serve the patient's needs, what you do should be determined by the patient's needs, not your own personal religious beliefs. I mean, right. You have to choose your livelihood by whether or not you can behave in accordance with your ethics beforehand. Nobody can join like a, an arms dealer and then decide, I don't want to work on the assembly line because I'm against manufacturing weapons. This right. Is- it's, it's kind of equivalent to you know a Quaker hiding his or her beliefs and becoming the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and then saying, well, I'm a Quaker and I can't deploy forces, so don't ask me to do that. Well, it just it doesn't make sense. Uh, and the other thing is, in the military context, it's not like if you have a conscientious objection – you just get off. No, I mean, you actually have to have alternative right. service. And what these pharmacists and nurses, et cetera, who are objecting want is the right to impose their conscience on the patient. And not only that, to do it without any penalty whatsoever. Uh, they refuse to take alternative shifts, to be transferred to another mm-hmm. position. They say, no, we, we can keep doing what we're doing. It's just that we can pick and choose the services that we want to deliver. And that simply makes no sense. And there's no precedent for it in the law. Um, bringing up matters of law, just a quick question on the uh, the Supreme Court and justices. Um, how important would be the Supreme Court and the next president's pick of justices to issues in bioethics? How often do these issues actually terminate uh, at the at the level of the courts? Uh, they terminate fairly frequently depending on the type of issue you're talking about. Uh, obviously, abortion is an issue that in one facet or another has come before the court probably two dozen times, uh, most recently in the court's decision on whether to uphold the ban on intact DNA, which some people call partial birth, partial birth abortion. That's really an, an improper medical term. Uh, so that issue certainly is before the court quite often. Assistance in dying uh, in various facets has come before the court a few times, most recently because of uh, former Attorney General Ashcroft's attempt to circumvent the law in Oregon, uh, because since the Department of Justice has control over controlled substances, can be dispensed, and you know what what laws should be used to prevent drug trafficking. He used that rather thin rationale to say that the Department of Justice can prevent physicians from prescribing barbiturates in Oregon when they're being used to help uh, hasten a patient's death. And I know it's 
it's laughable almost, except for the fact that you know it almost had a very serious impact on patient rights. Mm. Uh, the Department of Justice, with a straight face, I guess a straight face, submitted a brief. The Supreme Court said, "Well, we have to do this to prevent drug trafficking," which is just absurd. I mean, there's no evidence whatsoever that there's some underground traffic in barbiturates that are being <laughs> these patients. I mean, the street value of them, first of all, would be negligible. I mean, it was just it was absurd. It was clearly an attempt by the Justice Department to uh, veto the Democratic vote of the people of Oregon. Uh, in any event, that case went before the Supreme Court, and then fortunately the Supreme Court, uh, by a 6-3 vote, uh, said Ashcroft was overstepping uh, his authority. But that shows you the importance of who's on the court, because mm-hmm. that really should have been a no-brainer. It should have been a nine-zip nine decision. Uh, but you, you had three justices who were willing to uphold Ashcroft's attempt to essentially act as a dictator and tell the people of Oregon how they should decide these issues. So, yeah, these issues come up from time to time. Another issue which I look in one way or another to come up is the issue of genetically modified or genetically mm-hmm. eared engineered plants. Hmm. One way it may come up is right now there is a, a bit of a, not a bit of, actually a very serious dispute between how these plants are regulated uh, in the United States and in Europe. And the United States has, in fact, said that the regulations that the Europeans have imposed effectively act as a trade ban uh, on United States produce because the United hmm. States does regulate genetically engineered plants, but they regulate them like they do uh, essentially anything else. I mean, the FDA looks at it, determines that, or the Department of Agriculture, depending on exactly what aspect of the process you're looking at, looks at it in terms of what the the safety risk is, whereas the Europeans have a much different attitude. They apply what's called the precautionary principle. And essentially what that means is even if there's no demonstrated safety risk, if there is some chance that there's something unanticipated that could happen, then we shouldn't allow the technology. Well, what scenario does that not cover? <laughs> exactly. A lot of people said if you're going to apply that, that you know, if people applied that millennia ago, we'd be without wheels or any other technology <laughs> because there's always there's always you know ramifications of technology that you can't anticipate. And in fact, I mean, some of the technology that was developed before we had any regulation did have some hmm. adverse effect. Domestication of animals, uh, which most people think overall has proved beneficial. I'm for it. Nonetheless, <laughs> it did result uh, in our acquiring diseases that we probably wouldn't have otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, measles, uh, smallpox, all those diseases uh, scientists believe came about because we became in closer contact with animals that we domesticated. So it actually had fairly significant biological consequences. Nonetheless, overall, it's proved to be a benefit. Uh, at any rate, I think that's an example of an issue that uh, could become come before the, the court in terms of a dispute about the mm. application of international treaties. Uh, so there is a whole range of, of issues. It's it's hard to anticipate because, of course, the court can't reach out and decide right. these things on its own. It has to wait for litigants to bring the case before it. But uh, certainly the Supreme Court does have uh, a say in these issues, and depending on who's on the court, you know, that's people like the lawyers, especially, and judges say the law is objective. <laughs> uh, again, it depends how you mean objective or subjective. The fact of the matter is judges bring their viewpoints to the bench, and mm-hmm. those viewpoints are going to be reflected in the opinions. So it's very important uh, who is actually sitting on the bench uh, mm-hmm. in terms of what policies we're going to have. As a final question, I think religious conservatives have presumed that they have the majority of Americans behind them when it comes to a lot of bioethics issues. And I think that idea was challenged by events like Terry Schiavo and what transpired there. And so I'm wondering, as as the political climate seems to be changing, what is your general impression about the direction we're taking in bioethics? Are you optimistic about the future? I am cautiously optimistic. I think there has been a a change in attitude uh, among many people. I think people are beginning to pay more attention to these issues and actually uh, consider them and reflect upon them, not simply rely on the dictates of, you know, the minister, priest, rabbi, whoever. So I I think there there are grounds for optimism, and I think it is true that uh, 
the religious right has overstated its influence. But that's not to say that it still doesn't remain a very powerful force. And they, when they see an issue that they think threatens their authority, because at the end of the day, that's what they want to preserve, their authority over Mm -hmm. moral matters, uh, they'll roll out all their weapons. Uh, Anytime, for example, there's uh, legislation proposed in some state to allow assisted dying, uh, you can count on the Catholic Church, for example, just to name one religious entity, not to pick on Catholics, that will invest uh, tens of millions of dollars to try to combat that uh, because they recognize if people start to get control over their lives, if they can decide for themselves when to hasten their death, uh, when to carry a fetus to term, it gives obviously people more control Mm -hmm. over their own lives. It takes away the church's control Mm -hmm. over their lives and control ultimately is what the churches want. Uh, well, you're certainly doing a lot to remedy that situation, and uh, we at Reasonable Doubts appreciate everything that you're doing. And thank you very much, Ronald Lindsay, for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And now we bring you another edition of Stranger Than Fiction. Spore game helps players understand intelligent design. Yes, the popular game Spore from the creators of The Sims is being bandied about by both evolutionists and by intelligent design proponents. The way this game works, and Jeremy, you actually have this game. Yes, you, yes. Intelligent design proponent. Uh, you? Uh, no, I broke a 10-year video game abstinence wow. to play Spore. I had successfully not played video games since I noticed I was pissing away too much of my life on the the first Legend of Zelda for Nintendo Whoa. 64. Jeez. Yeah, and just did a complete break. Cold turkey. Wow. Quit, quit the gaming. That's harsh. Spore was too much. I had to get back in the game. And how does this game work for for those out there who are uninformed? It's awesome. You start off as a single-celled organism. Mm-hmm. A person. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and you guide this organism through a series of evolutionary changes. Once you rack up a couple of points, you can mate with another organism of your kind, and then you can switch around parts and design your own creature. And you build civilizations That's eventually. Right. And, and, uh, you could extend and your pseudopod. The decisions that you make uh, as far as building your creature, whether or not it's going to be a carnivore or an herbivore, mm. will go down through the chain of events and determine what your options are later in the game. See, eventually, you can make it all the way to the point where you are navigating the universe and you are a nice. space-faring race. And uh, and basically at that point, because the video game kind of generates these environments on the fly, it's it's pretty much infinite. You could play the game forever. And, and when you first showed me this game, I, the, I think the first thing I said was, wow, it's intelligent design, the game. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it would be ridiculous to think that this follows evolution very closely, and nobody's ever made that claim. And I think that the ID proponents are right, to say that yes, this is kind of intelligent design because you're you're because guiding, you're guiding it. it. You're but selecting the features. You can select the parameters and the features. Right, right, right. Whether right. it has uh, these eyes, you know, Jeremy's thing has four eyes to read two books at once. Or but I don't think too much should be made of this for the simple fact that you have to do that, or there would be no sort of interesting gameplay. Unguided natural here. selection yeah. of the game. If it's entirely <laughs> unguided, all you're doing is just watching the screen. As if it's unguided, develop. you're not even allowed to turn on the game. Couldn't it be you know? this, though? I was thinking about how to make it Darwinian. Couldn't you have something where the random generator generates the features, but then in the selection phase, you're the environment that oh, can, that can whittle away certain features. So let's say that you have you know 50 creatures that are generated. That there's a randomly mutated a bunch of them. You know, mm-hmm. like they're, they're radiated they're next to a, in a pond next to a power plant, and then uh, and then you select like okay, it's a cold winter this year, and then the ones that are weak die but off. But then you're still you're still controlling still, the world. You're that's still just designing. moving the design back one yeah. one step. So, unguided yeah, natural selection it's, does not work as a video it's a, game. It's a valiant effort. Luke. Yes, I, I, I like your that. thinking. Um, but but you know it's it's clear. Will Wright, the creator, the creator of the game, mm-hmm. has made it very clear what he intended. 
this is not supposed to be a textbook on evolution 101. What he's right. trying to show is the grand scope of life, you know, that is from a spacefaring civilization goes all the way back in time to what was just a single-celled organism. It's supposed to try to convey that kind of powers of 10 grandeur, and you can even scroll out on your mouse wheel and go from the level of a creature all the way out to the level of the cosmos. And I, I think yeah. it's great for that reason. Right. Um, and But it is, it's funny, though, to hear these intelligent design people talk about how pumped up they are for very different reasons. This is from the article, Spore Game Helps Players Understand Intelligent Design, from the Christian Post. Most Christian ball posts. The article says the game even refutes many Darwinist objections to ID, argues Casey Luskin with the Discovery Institute, a leading intelligent design think tank. He says, browsing on YouTube, I can find hundreds if not thousands of spore creatures that were designed by people whose real names, parents' names, and tribes of origin I know nothing about. We don't have to know who the designer is or who spawned the designer to be able to detect design. Oh my gosh! No, that's wow. funny because <laughs> because don't, don't, don't this don't is the type people of claim that you can infer characteristics about God from studying creation. Yes. So, in other words, what, that's basically a contradiction. So, if he's saying that, that if he's a, a Christian, he's saying, "Oh, I can know God by looking at His universe and and looking at the natural law and, and infer characteristics of His morality and such." Why can't he infer characteristics about the designers looking at their creatures? Yeah, I uh, I don't know, but it, it's just it's just laughable that here he's using YouTube and Spore right. in some serious way to try to debunk. Let's look at real life Spore. What selection. kind of what kind of god creates guinea worms that that get inside children's intestines and burst out of their skin and Ew. and malaria and uh, you know? Oh, that'd be a real bummer. What kind of god playing? does uh, engineers creatures <laughs> like that? But this this whole. Controversy gets even more ridiculous because there's the intelligent designers who are saying that this is pro-ID. There's the rational people who are saying you're crazy. And then there are Christians online um, acting as apologists for this game. Um, well, to their own. No to their own. Who, who see any association with evolution as as sinfulness. Right, right. Um, according to the article here, Benjamin McCormick – writing in a gaming website, gotgame.com, suggested Spore may even help players understand, in a small way, the heart of God. He says, quote, As you guide and care for your creations, you may actually develop an almost paternal sense of pride in watching them grow, kind of like children or sea monkeys. <laughs> so we're all sea monkeys to the creator of the universe. And, you know, other gamers claiming that this doesn't make them hypocrites. They can be Christians and fans of Spore at the same time. No, that's – well, I think that's great, you know. Well, I, yeah, I, well, sure. I hope intelligent designers enjoy playing Spore. But how silly. They should, mean, have, uh, uh, they should have a, pro, a program with a package that where you can create your society's religion and then design Ooh. a religion against uh, certain features and, wow, it would well, probably actually, look very similar to what we have. No, actually, believe it or not, there's some of that in the game. Because um, as societies develop – I would yeah. think that. That was I, my idea. I want money. On, on the civilization level, mm -hmm. um, there's different ways to there's different ways to spread your civilization and conquer others. And one is through religion. You convert nice. them. You know, I shut do you my know, mouth. Do you know what is the greatest way to inoculate your own society from being converted to the from the religious one next door? Uh, tell them they're gonna go create to a religion. Make them happy. Really? Yeah. So I spent extra spore bucks go on creating venues of entertainment for my civilization <laughs> so that they were so happy they could never be converted You're by right. any it's, of the other Jeremy's religious cities. Denmark's civilization. Yeah. Right? Hey, how about converting to evangelical? No, we're pretty happy with our beer and uh, marijuana. <laughs> no, no, thank you. This is fantastic. I need to get this game. I don't know when you guys have time to do all this. I, I don't. I don't either. He's not going to read his books anymore if he does it cuts, all the time. It cuts into sleep. I'm going to like go over to his house and then like the, a shaft of light will enter through my door and this like pale creature will go, light from outside. Well, I was trying to decide if right, I wanted night. to just sit down and read my copy of Origin of Species or play Spore. And uh, frankly, I think Spore sounds more rewarding. Oh, my God. Well – I get to I, you know what it's it's it is a it's a paternal feeling like like raising children or sea, or sea monkeys yeah wiping them out with tsunamis 
All right. That's it for us on this edition of the Reasonable Doubts podcast. Find us online at www.doubtcast.org. Email us your questions, comments, challenges, etc. to doubtcast at gmail.com. And uh, if you get a chance, feel free to write us a nice little review on iTunes. We always appreciate those. Just, just throwing that out there as a possibility. Thanks for listening, everybody. Till next time. Episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>